This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Great to see you, great to see visitors. My name's Howard, I lead the church. So we're in a number, I can't remember, number five, number six of this series called Vital Signs, taking the uh, spiritual health check of the church. We've looked at, well I could ask you actually, but actually I might feel insecure if you don't remember, so I'll tell you. No, we've looked at knowing God, we've looked at knowing God through prayer, we've looked at building community, being authentic community, we've looked at being radical disciples, and last time... We looked at the gospel, being a missional church, not being unashamed of the gospel. So um, today, today I want to look at being a people of God's spirit. Um, after the, this, then it becomes very practical. So the next few after this are going to be about marriage and parents and money and all of those stuff. But these are the big picture ones about the church and we would be amiss if we weren't going to talk about being a people of God's spirit. Okay. So it's funny, when you hear, if somebody says you're going to hear a talk about the people, being a people of God's spirit, there's probably two reactions, well there might be three reactions, but there's probably two reactions, uh, the third being there may be indifference, but if you have a reaction at all, one reaction might be about time, about time in this church, I'll probably look at Tom and he probably thinks, about time, when I asked uh, Tom what we should preach on vital signs, he says, that was right on his list, we need to talk about the Holy Spirit, and some of you think about time, and other you might think, uh-oh, It's about to all kick off. It's going to be one of those Holy Spirit moments where weird things happen. So there's lots I could have said. I could have talked about spiritual gifts and how does that work in worship, and I might do that. But I'm just going to try and root it right down into uh, what it means for us to be a people of the Spirit. So uh, we will get some time afterwards to pray and be prayed for. Let's, uh, let's, let me read and let's go to work. So if you've got a Bible, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul's uh, writing to the church in Ephesus, probably about te- four or five years after he went there and planted it. He's probably in Rome, and he writes a whole stack of letters while he's in Rome uh, to churches that he planted. Uh, Ephesus is in Turkey, a uh, nice place to go uh, to visit if you can. And um, he's writing to this church that's a mix of Jews and, and, and Gentiles, non-Jews. And we could have, chapter one is brilliant. I mean, in fact, read chapter one just for fun. It's like the longest, best sentence from verse three to uh, verse 14, 15. But we're in chapter two, uh, which is brilliant as well. And uh, let's, let's jump in at verse 12. It says, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He himself is our peace, or our shalom, or our wholeness, our goodness, our peace, who has made the two groups, this is Jews and Gentiles, made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, 
by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, or one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, that's his, both to reconcile both to them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, this is the key verse here, through him we have access to the Father by the one Spirit. As a result, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Okay, so I'd like to say, Paul's writing this letter. Uh, his pattern when Paul planted churches, it's interesting, some people, when you plant a church, people think, well, what are you doing starting a church from scratch? Uh, every church got started from scratch. Somewhere or other, there wasn't a church and got started a church. Some got started through different means. But Paul plants churches. He starts by, from scratch and he goes at first to the synagogue, uh, to the Jewish uh, believers, and starts with them. He starts with those that know a little bit about, about the Old Testament, know a little bit about God. They've got some, some understanding. And he, and he goes there for three months and teaches them. Some of them believe and some of them get incredibly angry and kick him out. And then he moves out of that into... Uh, a hall like this, perhaps, uh, probably a little bit nicer, uh, although this is pretty nice, the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus, which is uh, this incredible building uh, that you can still go and see in Ephesus. And he preaches there for two years and preaches mainly to people that are not Jews. And so what we've got in this passage is we've got this tension between those Jewish b- uh, believers who've become Christians and those uh, ones who are not Jews, the Greek believers who, who have got really no background I- I- in the Old Testament stuff. And there's, there's kind of tension uh, in all the churches, but clearly there's tension in this church, and Paul is uh, wonderfully addresses the big themes, two big themes in this passage. In fact, what, uh, one that he's talking about, it, which is about what it means to be the people of God, and the other one is what it means to be the temple of God. And those two are very kind of Jewish understanding. The Jews had this idea that they're the chosen people of God and they would have, that had been rooted in their culture. And they also had this idea that where you met God or where you encountered God was at, at the temple. Those two very Jewish ideas are kind of at the front. But also, he picks up a couple of Roman ideas. A, a couple of uh, ideas from the culture around what, which is uh, when he talks about citizenship. Obviously, to be a Roman citizen in the time of the empire was like a really big deal. Uh, the uh, empire was very stratified, and uh, so to be a Roman citizen was a big deal. And he talks about being a, a citizen and sons. And so what you've got uh, is, I want to pull out those two themes, and I want to see how Paul blends the two things together, and actually tells us in those things about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk about the people of God, and the temple of God, from the Jewish point of view, I'm going to pick up sonship and citizenship from a Roman point of view, and he blends them together brilliantly and talks to us about the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the first one, a new people of God by the one Spirit. It's interesting, every group of people, there's a picture of four, four groups of people, every group of people have what's called boundary markers or identity markers, things that, that show you who they are, that, that tell you, this is the kind of person I am. So top left, we have who? Cheltenham man, yeah, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, 
Anybody got a pair of hunters? I tried, I went to the outlet store, too expensive for me. Uh, hunters, nice, Range Rover, nice doggy, uh, barber, barber puffer jacket. You can tell, it's like race week. Tweed, Harris Tweed, brogues, little thing saying enclosure. You know who's who in those kind of settings. Here's the uh, bottom right, there's another bunch. Who's that? Does anyone know who the guy, the white guy in the hat trying to be cool is? Justin Bieber, well done. Justin Bieber trying to be a rapper. He's got the hat. He's got the, the bling or the lack of bling. He, I don't know. I'm not very good at rappers. Help me. Andy, Andy likes rap music. Where's Spandy? He's gone out, has he? Oh, come on. What, what's the, the kind of identity markers of rappers? Bad language. <laughs> Go on. I should have done rockers, shouldn't I? I should have done heavy rockers, and then you'd have known all about it, Vic. Okay, so, so there's different groups. And then... Uh, let's take the top right. Does anyone know who, who, what those b bunch of guys are? Orthodox Jews. I used to live in Manchester, uh, North Manchester, small Jewish community in North Manchester. You were driving through Manchester on a Saturday. Everybody else is wearing kind of trackies and off to the game or whatever. And then you come into this area. Sorry, it's probably a little bit of caricature. Forgive me. And you go into this area of North Manchester and suddenly you'd find these guys dressed like this. They're all walking because it's a Sabbath, it's a Saturday. Uh, my friend who used to uh, run an uh, aquarium business, they'd all clean out their fish tanks uh, once a year to get rid of all the yeast. They kept absolutely the letter of the law. I, I didn't check, but that of all the blokes would have been circumcised. They, that's the kind of orthodox Jew. They had these ringlets, they're all dressed in black. And, the, and you knew, but keeping the Sabbath, walking, circumcision, the kind of food they ate and didn't eat, uh, you know, those were the kind of identity markers. I couldn't find a, a typical Christian, but we have our identity markers. We probably don't look like that. All the ladies with doilies on their heads. And uh, although I, I can remember when I first started going to church, that's what used to happen. All the way ladies used to wear little kind of scarves on their head and, and stuff like that. And we all wear a Sunday best, and now you're all a bunch of scruffs and nobody knows what you look like. But we've all got our identity markers. We've all got our ways of saying, whoops, how are you in? And in the, in the culture in Paul's day, the identity markers for Jews were very similar to the ones in North Manchester today. They were identity markers would have been uh, Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, what they ate, the fool drools, uh, obeying God in that sense, going to the temple. And they had this strong sense that they were the, the people of God, the God's chosen people, that, they, that that was their identity. And you were, you were definitely in or out. You definitely knew, I'm a Jew or I'm not a Jew. To actually, to become a Jew, even today, is really very difficult. You can't just wander in and say, I'm going to become a Jew. You have to uh, learn all about Jewish religion. You've got to be baptized, which is an interesting one. You've got to be tested by the rabbi. And then they say to you three times, no, we're not going to let you be a Jew. And they kind of keep you away. Because they want, if you're going to convert to Judaism, it's hard. Because belonging to them, that tight group... Is, 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 is not just blurred. There's a clear boundary. And, and everybody's got those clear boundary markers. And the Jews of Jesus' time had that boundary marker. So Paul's speaking right into the kind of culture. And in fact, in the temple, those boundary markers, if there's a slide here, those temple, in the temple, that's not a picture of the real temple because that was destroyed in AD 70. It's a model that looks like the real temple. But in the middle, you've got that big box the kind of big building bit at the back, and that in the middle of that was a place called the Holy of Holies, where God was. And then the next level, where, where you probably can't read it, can you read it on the left? Court of the Levites, where the priests could go. They were like the top of the hierarchy. 
And then the next people, the court of the Israelites, that's the men. They were next in. And then further out, further away, the women. And then outside that bigger wall, there's another courtyard which you can see, which is surrounded by the colonnade. That's where the the Gentiles, the other nations could go. And then outside of that was the outside world. And that was their, their hierarchy. And you, you knew which part you belonged. And some people were close and felt good about themselves, and some people were far away and felt bad about themselves. And they had that sense that the, the, the building was built like that. But actually, that structure was also the same. In, in, it's similar in Roman families. So here's a slide of Roman structure. So obviously, you know which you all are. Plebs. So they had the pay, patricians... The kind of, so the senators and the, the equites, the horse riders, were basically the patricians, the ones who kind of ruled. And then below that, they had the plebs. That's people who weren't slaves, who maybe owned a horse or owned a, bit, a little bit of land. And below that, they had thousands and thousands of slaves. It's interesting that the gospel in Ephesus didn't reach the senators or the uh, uh, patricians. They were mostly people at the bottom of the hierarchy. But what used to happen in Roman society would be that... Sometimes you could get moved up. And the way that would happen would be a patrician or someone who had lots of money and lots of wealth would invite somebody, maybe a son from a poorer family who's kind of, you know, maybe a strong, good soldier or been a great slave or someone that he'd had some affection to and invite them into the family. And the, 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 uh, the patra familius, the kind of head of the family, the, the male head of the family would, uh, would adopt this son to be his heir. And if you've seen the film Ben-Hur, and it's a really old film, three of us will probably remember that film, but he's a slave, uh, uh, he's taken away as a slave, uh, a galley slave, and what happens is he rescues, the, he rescues the general and serves in his house, and then the general adopts him as his family. He becomes uh, the, uh, a Roman citizen, he becomes the, the son of that. And so we've got these two kind of things about near and far and, um, and going on together. And so what happens is, Paul kind of pulls them together. And he says to both groups, remember that one time you were separate from Christ. But actually his purpose was to make, bring you in, to make you one people. And he uses these kind of ideas, he mixes his metaphors between Roman and Jewish ideas. So he talks about citizenship, adoption, covenant, uh, foreigners. So he says you're excluded from citizen of Israel. So the Gentiles would have thought, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a part of the people of God. Foreigners, ones outside the promises of God. And then it says, you who are far away, ones outside again are brought near. So everybody feels like I'm being brought closer in, brought closer to God. And he says, uh, and now, and then he uses kind of Roman ideas. He says, no longer foreigners, you know, they were down with the slaves, foreigners down with the slaves. But, but now fellow citizens, you've moved up the hierarchy with God's people and members of God's household. So he's using those terms, you're tracking with me, saying to those people, the Jews, you're far away in some ways, and to the Romans, you're far away in some ways, and we're going to find our togetherness in Jesus. And what happens is, he says, well, how is he going to do this? How was God going to do this? And he says, uh, Paul says, he did it by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. If you go back to that picture of the temple, actually, let's read that one. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our shalom, our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments. So what is he saying to Jews about their identity? Have a look at that. You probably think, oh, can't you just make this sermon about me? No, sorry, it's about the Bible and Jesus. Okay, so um, what's he saying to Jews about their identity? Where did I say the Jews got their identity? Rules and regulations, so keeping the rules. And also there's a little hint there about a dividing wall. If you go back to the the temple picture, actually, Tom, that that dividing wall that says you're, you're in and you're out, he's saying, I'm knocking that down. So he's saying to Jews, you thought you were in? You thought you were in because you were a Jew. You thought you could come in because you were a Jewish man or a priest. You thought you that. You kept the rules, so you thought you were in. But actually, I'm, do, I'm doing away with that. That's not how you're going to be, belong to the people of God. And he's also saying, if you go back to the, the, the phrase, he's saying that he's bringing them near, those who are far away. So foreigners and strangers and aliens, he's bringing them near. So how did he, Jesus did that? By fulfilling the law, by dying on the cross. He, so in one sense, he does all those things... That, that required to be a good Israelite. So he, he, he dies on the cross as the sacrifice. He he's dies outside the city to identify with those who are outside the temple. He, he, he's, he's stripped naked and mocked like a slave. He's, he becomes all those kind of outside things to, bring, to get, bring us near. And so he's basically saying that I want to bring you through my death and resurrection, I want to bring you from outside to a new belonging. And then in verse 18, he says this. For through him, that's Jesus, we, both Jews and non-Jews, have access to the Father by the one Spirit. So this word Father's got two resonances, doesn't it, if we think. Let's track with me. So the resonance, the Roman resonance, it's like this. The, 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 the head of the Roman family, the, 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 you know, the, the patrician, the one who's wealthy and got influence, that, that, that father figure. You are far away. You've been brought near to this father. And then also for the Jews, it's where, where was God? In the, right in the very most holy place. You who were far away have been brought near to this father, into the very center of the temple because what could happen is in the center of the temple they, they couldn't come near that the holiest place where God dwelt by his spirit his presence was kept away there was a, like a big curtain you couldn't go in and then be, behind that there was like a, an altar where you had to give blood sacrifice and then behind that so even the priest couldn't come near even though he was like the top of the hierarchy he couldn't come near it had to be a blood sacrifice and then once a year he could go into the presence of God and, and Jesus and Paul saying all of that's gone All of that kind of giving sacrifices and keeping the rules and everything, all of that's gone. All of that sense of being a useless slave with no identity, all of that's gone. And he says, I've done it by the one Spirit. Now this is really important because what he's saying is what marks us out as God's people isn't rules or religion or whatever, isn't how we are on the social hierarchy. What marks us out is that God has drawn us in to the Father. That's why I've put that picture of Charlie Mackesee, the prodigal son. It's almost like this, God has drawn us right into the Father. He's drawn us right into the embrace of the Father and he's done it by the one Spirit. It's almost like you get a little glimpse of, of what God's like. 
You get a glimpse of what, the, what God's like. God is first and foremost a father. He's not a, before he's a ruler, before he's creator, before he's sovereign, before he's anything, he's a father because he's always loved his son by the spirit. He's always, it's always as if the, the father has loved the son. You can be the son, I'll be the father. The father has given himself to his son Jesus by the Holy Spirit and says, I give all that I am, I give to you. I love you, I pour out my love on you. And, the, and, the, and Jesus has done the same to the Father. We've got this glimpse of this kind of loving relationship, this closeness relationship that they have, that they've given themselves to each other. And actually, what happens is we're invited in. We're invited in. We've got access to the Father. Just like Jesus has always lived, it says in John, in the bosom. It's a funny phrase, but actually what it means in the, in the close embrace, next to the heartbeat of the Father, that's where Jesus lives. That's what John says at the beginning of his Gospel. And that's where you've been brought. Whether you're from a religious church background, or whether you're from a completely secular background, all of those things that give your identity are gone, and, you've been, and Jesus has said, come in here because of what I've done on the cross. I've made a way, and the way you do it it's by your spirit, it says, no, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're members of God's household, that you, you've been invited in, you've been invited close. Paul, you get all the privileges that the son enjoys. So when Jotham got baptised, he's away this weekend, uh, but when Jotham got baptised, my son got baptised, I couldn't really say anything to him. I'm thinking, what, should we, what can I pray, what can I say? And all I could pray and say was, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And actually, in a kind of teenage kind of way, I put that up on Twitter and I got a lot of likes. So it must have been profound. But, but there's that sense where that is actually what God the Father speaks to his son. You're my beloved son and my delight. But now what happens is you get the God the Father speaks the same over you. And you think, well, I'm, I'm not worthy, I haven't kept the rules, I, I, I haven't done the right things, I'm, I'm from the lowest, I'm a pleb. But God has said, no, come on in. And he's done that by his spirit. He's done what the Bible calls adopted you. And I want you to understand that this is how the, how the first Christians understood the role of the spirit. Paul says it like this in Romans 8.14. It says, those who are led by the spirit of God are the... Children of God. That means you've been adopted. You are of no reputation, of of no influence, of of no value. Your life was cheap in the Roman Empire if you were a slave, but actually, no, now you've been adopted. You're the the heir of the greatest ruler. Heir of one greater than Caesar. You're the, 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 you've been adopted into his, his family. The whole of what God is Jesus's belongs to you. You're heirs of the whole thing. He says, the Spirit does not make you slaves. So you live in fear again. You don't have to be like those Roman slaves thinking, is they going to kill me at any moment? Slaves to sin, slaves to a bad master. Now you've been set free. That Rather, the Spirit you've received has brought about your adoption to sonship. And when we say sonship, it's not being sexist. What it's saying is it's that Roman legal term that says you are the first son or adopted right in the family and in him we cry daddy abba father how do you know you're a christian the spirit himself tells your spirit that you're god's children and if we are children then we're heirs 
of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's interesting, we can, we can often ask ourselves, how do I know I'm a Christian? And, and there's lots of different ways. When I became a Christian, when I was, uh, uh, well, my first, I had two girls at eight, which is embarrassing, but uh, when I became a Christian at age 11, I responded in a meeting and the lady, I came out and stood at the front in a big place and they said, fill in this card. And she just prayed a little prayer over me and said, read your Bible and pray every day, and I went away. And it's like, well, well how did I know I was a Christian? She didn't even give me the card. They gave that to someone else. It would have been handy if she gave me a card. I think later on my parents gave me like a, a little Bible with a little verse in the front. And, but, you know, I had this, how did I know as a Christian? Was it a little verse on a card or was it like a word in the Bible? How did I know? You can often think, well, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, I've done really well this week. I feel like a Christian this week because I've done really well. I've done those things that in my head, those identity markers the kind of spiritual bling, as it were, that make me feel like a Christian. I've done this. I've read my Bible. I'm going through the Bible in a year, and I've, I've read every day. Have you, Nays? Well done. So she's in. Jesus loves it. And then you get like, well, I didn't. I haven't. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't kept the rules this week. And I have messed up. Well, maybe I'm not in. And you'd start to have this uncertainty. And you start to feel, well, how do I know? Now, I guess if you're processing this as a Pentecostal, um, you might be saying, well, I know I'm in because I speak in tongues. One of the frightening things for me when I was miles away from God and backslidden was I could still speak in tongues. The church in Corinth could speak in tongues, and yet one man's sleeping with his father's wife. So there's, well, is that the marker then? Well, good speaking tongues. I came to the front and said a good prayer. What's the marker? I, I, the, the, John Wimber, who, who was a founder of the Vineyard Movement, who, who was a, in the Righteous Brothers and then became a, like a preacher and founded a movement of churches, he said it this way. He said, you know that you know that you know that he's your dad. It's almost like, is it so close? No, sometimes it's kind of, the, you know that you know that you know that you know he's your dad. It's not a, often that close. But there's that sense where... When you pray, our Father, it's not just a line. You know he's your Father. Now, some of you might be thinking, I'm not a Christian. But if you believed in God at some point, if you said, uh, I trust him in the cross to bring me near, I'm trusting in Jesus, and you've done that, then the Spirit of God is the one who made you do that. You become a Christian by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul says elsewhere, I'm, I'm off my notes, it's dangerous. Uh, but he says, nobody can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's not like that the Holy Spirit is some other experience. Now, probably you, probably some of you think, oh, I'm struggling with this. But some of you might think, well, actually, I became a Christian with some kind of filled in a card and prayed a prayer. And then 20 years later, 10 years later, I went to Soul Survivor or New Day or whatever, and I felt this experience, and I went, whoa. And now, now I'm filled with the Spirit. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that you become a Christian by the Holy Spirit. You're born again by the Holy Spirit. You're adopted into the family by the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian by... So what's this then? It's filling with the Spirit. So actually, what, what I, I felt was bad for me, and why I think... I'm not blaming the lady or blaming the situation, but if I'd have fully experienced the kind of power of God when I became a Christian, I might not have gone off and slept with people and, and drunk and been stupid and spent my money and been an idiot. 
Because actually becoming a Christian isn't just a little thought in your head. It's actually something that God does by your spirit. Imagine if you've been, if you were the prodigal son. Who, who knows the story of the prodigal son? Most of you. One of the most famous. The story of the prodigal son. He goes off into a far off country. And he spends all his money on wine, women and song. Maybe there wasn't so much song, but anyway. Uh, and, he, uh, and, he's, and he ends up far away. The Bible says in Luke 4.15, he was in a far away, remember this place of far away, he's in a far away country. And then he says, I'm going to arise and go back to my father. And he's rehearsing. Now, I've not been a very good Christian. I've not been a very good son. In fact, I've, I've been terrible. I haven't done that. I haven't read my Bible in a year. In fact, I've lost my Bible. I fed it to the pigs. I, I don't know what I was thinking. But he's working through these things and he said, I'm really not fit to be a son anymore. Just make me a pleb. Just make me a slave. Make me someone like that. And then what happens is he's processing that and he's thinking, I've got no right. And then what happens, and you know the story, it's the wonderful bit that he says, while he's a long way off, the father sees him. And what does the father do? He thinks, well, he's not really, has he? He has been bad. In fact, he said to his father, I wish you were dead. The father runs and wraps his arms around him and embraces him and he says, put a ring on the finger, put a robe on him, feet, give him a feast. Do you think the son was like indifferent to that? Do you think that was a non-emotional experience? Do you think that was just a cognitive experience? Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? How very kind of the father to do that. How very like God to be like that. No, if you've been messed up and you've been far away and, got, and, and, and you feel the Father come and wrap his massive arms around you, that's an emotional experience. If you feel him put the ring on your finger, that's a real experience. If you, if you takes away your filthiness and wraps you in his clothes of righteousness, that's a real experience. Becoming a Christian isn't just a nice idea. It's an sp- experience where the Spirit of God comes and makes you alive. Can I hear a slight Amen. Well, no, no idea where I've got to. <laughs> oh, let's see if we can pull it together. Okay, how am I doing? Okay, I'll try and get it down. Um, interestingly, Paul, when he, in Acts 19, he comes to uh, the church in uh, Ephesus. When he first comes to Ephesus, it says in Acts 19, we should have it there somewhere. It says, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. This is the letter he's writing to, the people he's writing to. This is his first encounter. And he finds some disciples. We don't know whose disciples they are. We're going to find out. It says, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, that's a strange question, isn't it? We wouldn't, we'd say, well, did you put your hand up in a meeting when you believed? Did you fill in a card? Did you go to a small group? Did you start reading your Bible? Did you speak in tongues? He asked, did you receive the Spirit? It's almost as if, he, for him, becoming a Christian is a Holy Spirit experience. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. Paul concludes they cannot clearly be Christians. They've never heard of the Holy Spirit. So he says, well, which baptism did you receive? They said, oh, John the Baptist baptism. He said, oh, well, that's okay. That was a baptism. Keep going. That was a baptism for repentance. I was aware of my sin. But actually, then he tells them about Jesus. He said, no, no, but John the Baptist said there's this guy called Jesus. And he preaches the gospel to them and tells them, the, tells them about that. And he says, when they heard that, then they were baptized, probably in water. And Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came. Now, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. You don't have to do that. But these guys did. 
But what I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit experience is, is a vital part of, of who it is. It's almost like the, the, being a Christian, if you imagine a heartbeat. Um, you know, when you take, when they, you know when they do a stethoscope to your heart? Oh, yeah. When they do a stethoscope to your heart, you get that ECG trace. But the heartbeat makes a, a rhythm. It goes lub-dub. We're taught that in A-level biology. I've never... It goes lub, dub, it, dub. It's basically the valves on the heart closing. And there's two movements, lub, dub. It's almost like pump to the lungs, oxygen in the blood, back to the heart, pump around the body. And, 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 and that's what a kind of a healthy body looks like. It, that's what a healthy person looks like. It's got the lub, dub. But somehow we've got in our thinking that churches need to be lub or dub. You're probably thinking, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. Okay, a lub church could be, we have great worship, lub. Great ministry, come to the front, we'll lay hands on you, lub. Lub, oxygen in the blood, blood. love, lub, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and then other churches might be dub churches. Well, we're going to preach the Bible, boom, we're going to preach Jesus crucified, but dub, dub, dub. Where did we get that? The Christian church, the Christian life is, say it after me, lub, dub, lub, dub. So I wrote some lub dubs down. Lub, word, dub, spirit. Well done, we're good. Okay. Truth, lub, life. Truth, life. Bible encounter. Gospel Presence, Jesus, Spirit. Boom, 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 boom. That's who we want to be. Because that's how you get alive. That's how the Holy Spirit makes you alive. He says, love, repentance and faith. I'm like, yeah, Jesus has done it all. Dub, life in the Spirit. I know he's my daddy. That's how you know you're the people of God. Whatever it looks like in terms of you, that you know, that you know, that you know that he's your daddy. And the only person that does that is the Spirit of God. Second point is about temple. Paul reads, uh, goes on in this passage. First of all, he's been talking about, he says, you are members of God's household with Jesus Christ as the true cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. In him, Jesus Christ, the whole building joins together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him... You two have been built together to become a dwelling in which God lives, lives by his spirit. It's almost like the, the passage turns on this word household. Now when you think of household, what do you think of? I've given you some clues here, so let's say we go. When you think of household, anybody want to play? Think of family, yeah? And I think Paul wants us to think about that. You're members of God's household. Yeah, yeah, you, you've been adopted by this incredible patrician, this incredible ruler, and he's, you've made, he's, he's, he, he's your daddy. But also, household, that, that, it's actually God's house is this kind of sense of household. The word it uses uh, actually is like household in terms of, uh, it's, it, the word is oikos, it's like means like family, but also it means the kind of dwelling place. And, and so this sense of, actually, he's, he's turning and saying, well, there's another way that you know that what the Holy Spirit does, and that's about temple, because he doesn't carry on. He just carries on with members of God's household. He doesn't say family, he says members of God's household. And then he's obviously talking about a building. With Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Oh, he's definitely talking about a building now. In him, the whole building... 
joined together and rises to become a temple in him, in Jesus. You two are being built together to become a temple in which God dwells by by the Spirit. It's interesting, at the same time Paul's writing this letter, Peter's in Rome probably at the same time, and he writes another letter, and he writes this in his letter. Almost Almost the same thing. Grow up into your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is God, come to him, the living or cornerstone, rejected by men or humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. It's almost the same word there. To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable for God through Christ our Lord. Now, does anybody know uh, who... Peter writes this letter, actually, to people who live in, in, in Turkey, in Beth- Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. The list of places. Now, interesting, if you read Acts 2, those are some of the places that are mentioned in Acts 2. It says, people from Pontus, Gaza, Athelia. What happened in Acts 2? Does anybody know what happened in Acts 2? In a house. The Spirit came. Peter's there in the house. He's in a house. And what happens is the Spirit comes and fills the whole room. It's a, it's, it's a, a, Luke records it something like this. The Holy Spirit came like a rushing wind and filled the house where they were seated. And tongues of fire rested on each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to praise God in other languages. So which house is Paul talking about? Sorry, which house is Peter talking about? Is he talking about the family? Is he talking about the temple? Or is he talking about this house where, where actually the Spirit comes? And the answer is, all of them. He's squashing them together. He's saying, actually, your household, your small group, your community that you share faith with, is the same type of house as that upper room where the Spirit comes, is the same type of house as God's temple. In fact, here's a little clue to know what he's doing. If you read in 2 Chronicles 7, when the actual temple building... Oh, no, let me just say this, just so you know I'm not making it up. uh, David says to to God, can I build a house for you? And God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. One house being a temple, the other house being a family dynasty. So Peter's and Paul are kind of using that house thing. Maybe the Jews would have got it straight away. I've helped you, I hope. Okay, so let's try and get this down then. So when Solomon is praying in the temple, the temple's been built not of living stones, but of big stones, and they've carved it out and made it brilliant. What happens is then Solomon prays for the temple. He says, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifice, and the, is it up there? Say it with me. The Spirit comes and fills the temple. So that's really important. What, so the Jews thought the way to meet with God and the way to have God's presence, you've got to go to this building. But when the Spirit came, he's saying, no, this building, this family called the little church, God First Church, that's where you can encounter the same thing. Tracking it? Gordon Fee, Fee a theologian, says this in his commentary on... Uh, Uh, in his book about the Spirit of God, he says this, the gathered church is the place of God's own personal presence by his Spirit. That's phenomenal. 
You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You don't have to make a sacrifice. You don't have to go behind the curtain once a year in fear of death. No. We, the local church, is God's temple in the community where it's placed. And so by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone, God dwells with his people. That should change what you feel when you come to church, when you gather to church. That should change everything we do. It should change everything we do. But Paul just wants to make sure that you don't just think it's all about, and Peter does the same, that it's all just about an experience, because it is an experience, but it's all just about a worship experience. He said, he said we're going to fill this temple, but actually it's going to have as its cornerstone in him. Jesus, you are being built into it together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. Don't you know that together you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? But he says, just so you don't go off kilter, I'm going to put a cornerstone in this building. There's going to be a lub-dub, presence and gospel. I'm going to put a cornerstone in this building. I'm going to put a cornerstone called Jesus. He said, the rock that uh, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the foundation. If you're, if you're a church that's full of the Spirit but hasn't got a cornerstone, it's blown hot air. If you've got lots of cornerstones in the lovely building but there's no Spirit, what are you doing? You're the temple where God dwells. We have this cornerstone. I love the song. We might even sing it if the guys can get it together. I asked them at the last minute. It says, my, it's in that light song, Cornerstone, it says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ alone, cornerstone. But we're going to break bread in a minute, but I want you to understand what's happening when we break bread. How could the high priest come into the presence of God? How could he come into, as it were, the holy of holies, the, the central place? There needed to be a sacrifice. They'd take the blood of the animal and they'd slaughter the perfect bull or lamb and they'd, oh, I shouldn't do it now, I'd splash it on Johnny. He got trouble last time he came. The blood, they'd splash the blood on the altar to cover the sin. You've been brought near. You can come. You can come past the altar. And then there was a curtain. There was a curtain. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The curtain that divided the presence of God from the people was torn in two. Since we have confidence to come into the very presence of the adopting Father, the most holy place, the place where the Jews was the center of the universe, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up to us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, over there is the house of God. Let's draw near. The Holy Spirit comes out. The curtain's torn, and because of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes out and embraces you. And we can go right in. So when we break bread... We've come right into the very throne room of God. In fact, Jesus talks about the, the water of life coming out. It, it says in Ezekiel that there's a river of life that comes from the temple, the very presence of God. There's a river, the spirit that comes from the temple. And Jesus is at a, a, a festival where they're celebrating the river coming from the temple from Ezekiel 47. And Jesus says this. He says, if anyone is thirsty, then come to me and drink. Because now of his insides, 
to flow living water, rivers of water, life. When we go out of here, having tasted that God is good and seen how great he is and, and entered his presence and worshipped some more and maybe got prayed for and, and be filled afresh with the Spirit, we go out as the river of God's presence. We're the, the, the river that flows out of the temple to, into your university and into your school and into your uh, friends and housemates. We're the, we're the presence of God that's broken out. For a generation that says, who am I? Where do I fit? How do I belong? What's my identity? No, your Father, God has said, come by the Spirit and be embraced by the Father. So we're going to break bread now. Do you want to come back, guys? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.